everyone, and welcome back to the Strike and Ellicott Files, an unofficial podcast dedicated to all things Cormer and Strike and Robin Ellicott, as written by Robert Galbraith. My name is Kenz. I'm Lindsay. I'm Pulse. And today we'll be continuing our reread of The Running Grave, this time covering chapters 36 in part two and chapter 37 in part three. Please be aware, as always, that our discussion of The Running Grave will often reference the ending of this book, as well as the rest of the books in the series. But before we get started, do we want to get into the Q&A for this episode? Yes. I really like this one. So the Q&A for this episode is, London has been a focal point for the previous strike novels. What role does it play in The Running Grave? This was an interesting book to write because it's, um, it's really a split location book. So while Strike is largely London-based and conducting the investigation from the office as usual, Robin is in Norfolk for a huge part of the book. And it was interesting because, firstly, by separating them, I think they become closer. <laughs> because they're writing letters to each other. It's their only means of communication. Robin has to smuggle these letters out and Strike is smuggling them in. And that was an interesting part of the book for me because their relationship really does deepen through physical separation, which is odd, but can happen. And then the other important part of the book, and I, I visited Norfolk and I, I, I wanted to get it right, is the Norfolk landscape. Now. I hope people from Norfolk will forgive me for saying that I find that very flat landscape a little bit sinister. I don't think I'm I'm alone in that. It has its beauty, no question. That's why I put the commune that Strike lived at as a child in Norfolk in the first place, because I do find something slightly sinister about the flatness of that landscape and the the sort of marshy parts of Norfolk. Um, That said, she said, not wanting people from Norfolk to hate me. Um, I can remember a very happy childhood holiday in Croma, which also features in the book. So um, yes, it's not all bad. <laughs> but I, yeah, I, I found it very satisfying actually to put a good chunk of the book outside London. It just changed the tone and feeling of the book a lot. My favorite thing about this answer is when she says, odd, but it can happen, <laughs> about their physical separation, bringing them closer, mm-hmm. as if she didn't plan it that way. Mm-hmm. I find it delightful because mm-hmm. I think it's a good example of what we were talking about a while ago, how she plans so much background for each of them, that she knows where they're coming from, and why they do things where it just happens so naturally that she can think of it this way. Yeah, mm-hmm. I just find it to be a fascinating part of her process. It is. And it's such evidence that they just live inside her head, you know, mm-hmm. like they do ours. Yeah. As, yep. as living people just locked up here. But this answer where she wrote about them being split up is so wonderful to me because before this book, I couldn't understand how being apart would bring them closer. I thought it would just be like, you know, miserable for everyone. But after this book, I'm like, oh, to joy, obviously, it's so obvious and so inevitable how it brings them together because it brings them into their own feelings. It's about the yearning for each other and feeling that and being like, oh, shit. I feel it. This person. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, Joan knows exactly what she's doing. This is proof. Mm -hmm. And I also love that she included the letters in this reasoning and why they became closer. Because Mm -hmm. for me, it just reiterates this idea that writing letters is just romantic. It It is. is. It's a bit of the other person's soul on a physical little piece of paper, not in a Horcrux way. You knew I was going to think it. I knew you were, but in like a sharing of the spirit mm. way rather than splitting and it's like concrete and it's there and it's a sign into their personality with their handwriting love it i love the letters 
What about the Norfolk bit? I don't think I've ever been to Norfolk. We might have driven through it. But Mm -hmm. I think what Joe is talking about with the flat landscape might feel the same way for me. Because here in Southern California, we have a lot of mountains Mm -hmm. all around. No matter which direction you're driving, there are mountains. So Mm -hmm. it's never just a flat landscape. So I can imagine it might feel a little unnatural, I guess. Mm. You know what? I don't know that I've ever even been to any super flat regions. I mean, where I live, it's not mountainous exactly, but it's not flat. It's medium landscape. Mm -hmm. It's medium. It's medium. I mean, I've been to Saskatchewan once, but I was only in a city, so I didn't really get that sort of flatness. And I'm curious about whether I'd feel that the same way about it being sinister. Mm. Yeah. Because I just think about it and I'm like, it would be really nice to see what's coming for like miles off. You can't get surprised on a flat landscape. Nobody's going to sneak up on you. Or it's lots of time to be freaking out about whatever it is in the (laughs) distance that's coming for you. I don't freak out. I prepare. It's time to like make a spear, dig a trap. Paranoid. That's what they say on the Crime Junkie podcast. Paranoid. Paranoid. Oh, that's cute. I like that. Yeah. Yes, paranoid. Too. That's mm-hmm. me. Mm-hmm. I lived in Texas for many many, many years. Hated the flat. Maybe it's because I'm one of those weird people that doesn't like to talk to my neighbors. I'm like a little antisocial, but I'm like, (laughs) I don't want you to be able, don't perceive me. Don't look at me. I need trees. You don't want to be seen. I don't exist. I'm just, I'm over Mm -hmm. here and you're over there and I don't want you to see me. You should build a hobbit hole. I would love that. Maybe it's the marshy area that Mm. adds to that feeling for Norfolk because we did talk about, you know, how people would get trapped. Remember when we were talking Mm -hmm. about the whole thing? Mm -hmm. And about the, That's gotta be creepy. The Lord of the Rings with the swamp with all the, the corpses underneath. Oh, yes. And I also used to live over near New Orleans for a couple of years. So I lived over oh, by some marshy gators. bits. And it is, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. There was one time where I almost fell into some swamp water. It was scary oh as hell. Oh. That's very scary. You know how she says that this was fun because it was a split location? Yeah. Book? Mm-hmm. It is. But they're still kind of close together where they can go back and forth. I wonder if she's going to do another split location book that's farther away. Well, I think that to us in North America, everything in England is pretty close together for us. It like is. it's mm-hmm. four hours tops, right? That's very mm-hmm. true. Yeah. yeah. And for me, I'm like, well, four hours round trip to Costco. I do need toilet paper. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah, you yeah. know, whereas for the English, they're like, well, my parents live 45 minutes away. So I only see them once a year. Yeah, I've heard that. I've heard that. Oh I'm my like, gosh. I drive 45 minutes for cheese bread. Right? From what I've heard, British listeners can correct me if I'm wrong. Yeah. It's all kind of closer together there. So your sense of distance is different. Mm-hmm. Our sense is very different from their sense. So they might be like, oh, right. she's in Norfolk. She's so far away. And we're like, oh, she's just up the road. That's yeah. just reminding me of that bit from um, Lethal White where they were talking about Suki and how, what was it? They made up some location that she had gone off to like Aberdeen. And it yeah. says something about how they thought that Aberdeen like was like planet. so exactly it's so far away it's on a different it's like five planet. hours away guys it's in Scotland uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> I don't actually know how many hours it is away yeah anyway should we jump into the chapter chapter 36 yes. in chapter 36 Robin receives her first note from strike so good so the epigraph for this chapter nine in the third place means a halted retreat is nerve-wracking and dangerous And that is from hexagram 33, retreat. I think this is saying that the retreat is over and it's about to get real. 
Mm-hmm. Shit's getting real. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The nerve wracking and dangerous part definitely fits this chapter, particularly Robin having to stop what she's doing and hide on the ground in the nettles. But I really like this line from this hexagram, which says, The power of the dark is ascending. The light retreats to security so that the dark cannot encroach upon it. Because isn't that exactly what happens when Robin retreats to the woods to read Strike's note? She is the light and he is her security and he's fortifying her against the darkness are you saying that strike is robin's patronus <gasps> that's what i'm hearing you say oh would hers be a big bear or a bison oh, oh my god i love that okay the image of robin's patronus turning into a big black bear oh mm-hmm. um, yep that's it yeah what would his patronus turn into to represent robin though well is a robin too on those? <laughs> <laughs> i mean it might be I do feel like a bird would fit, but I have to look up bird symbolism. Maybe a swan. Mm. Well, you know, we love a swan. We love a swan and swans can be very mean. Well, they can kick your ass is what they can do and look great doing it. Just like strike. (laughs) (laughs) Sure. I do like the idea, though, of Robin having this giant bear Patronus and strike with a teeny tiny bird. Teeny tiny little bird. (laughs) Powerful, of course. Oh, it would send the Dementors to the other side of the planet because he'd use a memory of Robin and that would be very very powerful. powerful. Happy memories. Yeah. Yeah. I want my Patronus to be a great white shark. Just for That'd the be record. a cool ass Patronus. I know it would be. Swimming around in the air. I feel like mine would definitely be some sort of cat, like a lion. Like Umbridge. Nice though. Or like a panther or like a really good house cat. A sphinx cat. No, not a sphinx cat. Why do you like weird cats? I want good because cats. Because they're so cute. They look <laughs> like house elves. Uh, they look like goblins. They're so Yeah, they look oh like house elves. They're adorable. Oh, no, no, no. You know what? A hyena. I think I got a hyena on the Pottermore test and I loved it because hyenas are amazing, matriarchal, powerful. I like the idea of a hyena because in my mind, it would just laugh at a Dementor and then make it feel stupid. Oh, that would be so funny. Dementor walks, floats away (laughs) with its head hung low. Yeah. Yeah. Wow, we got way off topic there. Well, is it off topic or is it a vital discussion? Yeah, let's jump into the chapter, though. All right. So starting out this chapter, it starts with the ending of the baptism party. Is that what we should call it? Oh, okay. You just made me realize that this is the second baptism party we've seen in this book. Oh, yeah. I think I prefer the version with the cake myself. Mm. And also the one that you can leave without having to sneak out over barbed wire in the middle of the night. Mm-hmm. Both perks. Yeah. Both perks. Although Bijou is not this party, which is a pretty Ooh. big point in its favor so i don't know very true Mm. colts or bijou (laughs) sophie's choice Uh, also at this party i guess post party at robin's solitary post party walk in the woods just like the last one robin is much more eager to talk to strike than to her boyfriend interesting Mm -hmm. that Mm -hmm. it's really just about time that he became her boyfriend so this nonsense can end honestly i thought that robin valued efficiency would it not be efficient to have the man you're in love with also be your boyfriend like it just makes sense amazing it does make sense it makes sense has anyone told her that this (laughs) is something that she could possibly think about doing at some Mm. point ilsa's over here screaming like i did (laughs) i did I've told her. <laughs> so we're still at this party. Robin is sitting there pretending to look happy, but she's exhausted and she must be nervous about mm. to sneak out to the rock for the first time. This is something that I know I would have a really hard time with pretending mm. to look happy when I don't. I 
struggle struggle with that oh yeah i hear you i do too is that another way that you and striker are like uh add it to the list yeah uh-huh. <laughs> the ever-growing list the long ass list yeah <laughs> so this part where waist comes down off his little platform to dance with teenage girls it gives mm. me the heebie-jeebies i want to get a spray bottle and spray him with it like get off you know stay away from them squirt yes. like he's a cat on the counter i'd like a little bit more than a spray bottle for him maybe mm. some pepper spray ah. a taser oh solid i would love now you're cooking with gas i would love both of those options um maybe mm-hmm. at the same time sure both are illegal here to have so i'm gonna have to get creative with that i got you i'll cover you no you've got me thank you How great is this description of the packaging millionaire, though, when it says that he's moving like somebody whose joints needed oiling? How evocative. (laughs) uh, Is this a clue that he doesn't have a heart? Oh, I don't think the Tin Man deserves that comparison. No, the Tin Man was a sweet guy. He had a heart the whole time. Also, though, I just I feel a little called out because dancing is not a strength. Mm -mm. So I feel like I relate to this. You're not the only one. So note to self, if we ever have a strike meetup, yeah. no dancing. We'll have we'll hold it at the town of Footloose. <laughs> <laughs> Were you all as nervous as I was about her going to the rock? I was yeah. so nervous. Although I reassured myself that we are way too early in her undercover yeah. state to have anything go like too badly wrong. You got to have smooth sailing for a little while before it all goes to shit yeah also just from a plot standpoint yeah she has to get to the rock and back it has to happen for the whole thing to work yeah Mm -hmm. but i feel like this could have potentially been a bad plan if Mm -hmm. you know what if like you said before pools they did lock the doors or Mm -hmm. what if they had cameras on the inside somewhere you know i suppose that they put so much trust in the brainwashing and the threat of punishment to keep people in line so much so that they figure they don't really need the actual physical security yeah and if your members are convinced that they're being surveilled all the time by the ghostly chick from the ring then why waste money on on a surveillance system or locks because that's money that you can spend on airplanes to fancy tropical retreat that's true like Mm -hmm. have the ghost do the work for you yeah i was also really worried about her going to the rock i know that we were just talking about it but i was surprised that you know they didn't lock the doors or maybe have more people patrolling around the area but you know the scene didn't need any more suspense i was expecting a mrs norris or something snape's Mm -hmm. out there lurking like he does when does he ever just relax why is he always walking around that man he (laughs) does not know how to have fun clearly really has never had fun in his life maybe if he was less of a dick he'd be able to figure it out that is true As Robin is sneaking out, this is the first time that she realizes what the retreat rooms are for, right? Yeah. I mean, I think I had I had suspected this, but just felt so disgusted when it was confirmed here. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. As soon as you start hearing about the rhythmic thumping, it all sort of falls into place. Yeah. These squeals that could be pleasure or pain were what really unsettled me because, I mean, I feel like it's better than 50 50 odds that it's the latter. Mm-hmm. But if Robin hadn't needed to get to the rocks originally, it might have been worth lurking in the shadows to see who came out of this room, you know, in case it was valuable information. I found this part really relatable where Robin starts to remember the spirit Dayu and feels a little freaked out in the woods. Mm-hmm. I would be feeling this way too, even though like Robin, I would logically know that it had been a trick. I just think it's really relatable. It's really human. I'm glad that we got to see the ways in which Robin feels vulnerable. Yeah, because it would be a little unrealistic if she wasn't a little bit scared or kind of freaked out about it. She's brave, but she's not superhuman. Yeah. Trying to find your way through secluded woods at night. No light in just a tracksuit, exhausted on edge. That is a recipe for feeling spooked out even before you get to the ghost thing, right? Yeah. 
But after a bit of a struggle, she does manage to find the rock, and we all swooned at this, right? Mm-hmm. Turning on the pencil torch, she saw the pen, paper, and note in Strike's familiar handwriting, and her heart leapt as though she had seen him in person. Aww. This makes me think a tiny bit of when she goes to Leamington Spa in Trouble Blood, and she thinks she sees him, and Aww, she gets all. yeah. So sweet. I know I'm reiterating what I said in, in the Q&A for the session, but when I was so afraid of them spending a huge chunk of the book apart, because I thought I would hate it, but then you've got these little moments of missing each other and being comforted just by the reminder of the other person add in that the tension of waiting for them to be reunited it's just delicious i'm a little surprised to hear you say that you were afraid you'd hate it because before the book (laughs) you were the one saying she's going to be gone for most of the book most (laughs) of the book well i was just trying to prepare myself for the suffering Mm. okay i was bracing myself setting expectations to emotionally handle it now i'm prepared for your panic predictions well yeah but i agree that jake Rowling did a a really good job of watering the relationship bits even while they're apart and Mm. the results of the separation are just so good that it makes it all worth it so good i wish i could ask robin how her heart felt when she saw any of murphy's notes right just whatever the opposite of that is falling (laughs) dropping something dramatic indifference Yes, the exact opposite. It is so interesting how rarely we get to really see the details of what Murphy writes to her or vice versa, because we really mostly only hear about how his notes make her feel, which is anxious and annoyed, kind of pissed off. Definitely Mm -hmm. no heart leaping for him. I'm really hoping that once Robin has recovered from this whole ordeal, that she takes a minute to soul search about what that means. Come on, girl. We do see some things he writes. And Mm. I can't wait to talk about them, though, because not a fan of his letters. I think I must have blocked them out of my memory. (laughs) Right. (laughs) So the swooning over Strike's note is interrupted, though, because Robin then hears voices. I guess this happening on the first night she goes to the rock is a little bit reassuring because Mm. if other people are sneaking out too, it probably means that it's not as dangerous for Robin to be doing it. Yeah. If anyone in this place can manage it, then Robin definitely can. Yeah. Now I'm wondering, though, how many women's dormitories are there? Because Lynn's old enough to be in the women's dorm. I didn't get the impression that there were multiple dorms for each group. But if Lynn and Robin are in the same dorm, then then Lynn would have seen Robin's empty bed. I think that I had imagined different floors or rooms because I wasn't thinking that all of the women could fit in one single room. Yeah, different floors make sense. If they were in the same room and all the women were all together in one giant room, then it would be easier to miss one bed. Mm -hmm. So I'm guessing it's either one of those things. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah. I do wonder what excuse Robin would have given if she had been found. Mm -hmm. Do you think she could convince them that she was sleepwalking or something? (laughs) Well, I don't know that sleepwalkers traditionally stop to put on their tracksuits first. Hey, sleepwalkers (laughs) do weird things. Do they? They do. They do weird things. Yeah. Oh, yeah. She could also say that, like, she had a vision of Dayu beckoning her from the outside because she had a divine (laughs) mission for her, right? Because the cult can't just say, no, you didn't, without revealing the whole thing to be bullshit. You have to go along with the divine vision or the whole pyramid crumbles. That is more fun than sleepwalking. I'd have started having divine visions all over the place. Okay, so what Robin overhears is Lynn talking to Will. Lynn is crying and asking him to help her increase again so she doesn't have to go with him. Mm. I did not guess what increase meant at this point. Did either of you? Uh, No, I don't think I had any idea, but I found it intriguing. Like, what other kind of wacky cult bullshit are they up to now? Lots. That is really interesting to me because I actually, yes, totally understood what was going on here. I guess it seemed logical to me that make me increase meant make my belly increase in size, aka 
get me pregnant, right? Add in that Will clearly already has a child. And then the suggestion that increasing would save Lynn from having to go with a man, it seemed really obvious to me. So much so that actually I could have sworn that increasing was actually a real old fashioned term for pregnancy, like expecting or in the family way. But I went to have a good look and I I could find no evidence for this. So I guess Joe just did a really good job at coming up with a euphemism for pregnancy that's logical and cult-like. I've literally never heard in the family way before in my life. Really? What is that? No. You've never heard that? Never. There's lots. There's bun in the oven. Well, yeah, I've heard that. Up the duff. Never heard that one. The rabbit died. Nope. Which is, I think, an old thing from pregnancy tests. That one's very archaic. There's a bunch of them. Yeah, maybe I haven't heard it from anyone like living. And this is only <laughs> this is only an I read too much thing. But it's real, Lindsay. Mm. It's real. Okay. In the family way. I don't even know what that means. How well, does that one mean is pregnant? in the way that is the family. <laughs> I don't know. That doesn't make any sense. <laughs> Our listeners are going to back me up on this. This is a real thing. Uh, okay. Yeah, okay. We will see. <laughs> we'll see indeed. But no, increasing did not sound like that to me at all. It hmm. just sounded like weird cult stuff. Interesting. I was wondering why they called it this. And hmm. I was wondering if it's because pregnancy is literally increasing their numbers or oh. their profits. Mm-hmm. Maybe it also gives women and girls really a sense of higher being, if that makes sense. Like it's something to achieve. Yeah. You want them to want it. Yeah. You know what? That makes a lot of sense to me. I feel like it's probably framed as increasing the number of soldiers against the adversary or something. And then it's got the same sense of nobility, that higher purpose that you said that the idea of the living sacrifice connotes because, you know, a sacrifice, you're doing this for the cause. Because let's be real. You're going to have to create a very powerful spiritual rhetoric in order to make women go along with, even if you're, of course, being forcibly impregnated and then having their children taken away. And then, of course, yeah. you're right, 100%, that in reality, we know full well that what this is actually increasing is is the dollars in the ways of bank accounts. Yeah. Who was the man that Lynn didn't want to go with? Was it Kyle? Uh, I would really hope not, because he's her half-brother. Oh, yeah. Oh, yes. Child. Okay. <laughs> oh, no, thank you. Wait, wait a minute. No such thing as flesh objects, though. This oh is another God. one of those questions where I'm yeah. wondering when this comes up. I really hope that in this case, there was such a thing as flesh objects, because that's horrifying. Mm-hmm. I was thinking it might be Harmon, because we see him with her later in the book. It is hard to remember who is related to who. Mm-hmm. I know you just did a timeline, but we could also use a family tree. Oh. That would be very helpful. Oh, I might have to. I'll think about it. No guarantees. Mm. Listeners, let (laughs) pools know if you'd like this. We'll see. Anyway, it fills me with anger to see this young teenage girl having to think of some medical excuse so she's not forced to have sex with someone she doesn't want to. It's so frustrating and just so sad. Something that I was noticing during this reread is Lynn mentioning that she had cystitis, Mm. basically like a bladder infection previously, which is how she got out of spirit bonding before. Now, obviously, I'm not an expert or a doctor, but of the things that can cause that, one cause that seems the most likely is not peeing after sex because that usually Mm. that'll flush out some of the bacteria afterwards. And for most sexually active adults, this is sort of a routine thing that you know what to do. But Lynn is so young and I'm just sure that nobody bothered to tell her that that's something she should do. I just feel so bad for her. That's actually a great observation. I wouldn't be surprised if you're right because I highly doubt that they have any kind of real sex education, especially for the girls. Mm -hmm. It is a good sign though that this early on, Lynn and Will are discussing leaving. Even though Will is very against it in the beginning, it's still progress. 
Yes, it's a very good sign. The idea is already there. It's being planted. Mm -hmm. Yeah. This conversation left me so impressed with Lynn's strength because she has spent her whole life in this cult being beaten down by Mazu with no one to protect her after her mother died when she was only two. She's clearly terrified. She has no knowledge of the outside world. She's a teenage girl who gave birth at 14 after being... I presume, coerced into sex by this cult's teachings. But she loves her daughter so much that she is willing to risk a certain damnation and the drowned prophet coming after her to run away from the only world she knows. She'll do anything to avoid being taken away from her child and left unable to protect her. And I'm tearing up at how wonderful this sweet girl is just from this one conversation. Yeah, this is another wonderful example of a mother's love in J.K. Rowling's work. Yes. It reminds me of that thing where people say that a mother could find the strength to lift a car off her child if she needed to mm-hmm. right lynn is about to lift the car off of ching and get oh her to God. safety it is a theme it's a reoccurring theme so uh should we talk about the will and lynn situation ship here mm. because i in this book so conflicted about them um because on the one hand as i did the math for this timeline if ching is two years old in april 2016 she would have been conceived in i believe the summer of 2013 sometime which would have been just around lynn's 13th birthday and will would have been 20 years old and obviously in any other circumstance, I'd be out for blood here. But I mean, I would bet money on them both being coerced into this sex, not just by the general beliefs of the cult, but I feel like they might have specifically been pushed to sleep with each other by Wace because that scene in chapter 87 when Wace, and I'm quoting here, arranges a beautiful spirit bonding gag between Robin and Tayo. I can absolutely see that being a regular occurrence for members who are reluctant to go through with this sex stuff, right? And then with Lynn being Wace's daughter and with his apparent obsession for increasing his bloodline, also gag, I think it very likely that Lynn was heavily pressured to spirit bond with someone, maybe Will in particular, who was also pressured in the same way, or maybe she could have asked Will as the least bad option because he's a nice boy and maybe friendly to her. I guess the bigger question on my mind here is I'm trying to work out Will's moral culpability, the moral responsibility he bears for this statutory rape that happened here. And yeah, I don't think that either he or Lynn really had a choice. And it's like, strike says later, do normal rules really apply here? Here's the way I see this. I think of the men at Chapman Farm as being in two categories. Mm -hmm. So there are the ones with the power, the waces and the principles, who I do not believe believe the things they're saying. And they're doing this for power and sexual gratification and who I think should be prosecuted for every single time they raped an underage girl or anyone in this cult. Mm -hmm. And then there are the men in the UHC who are members, who are powerless, who have been indoctrinated and believe everything they're being told. I see these men as victims of the UHC too, and I do not believe that they should be punished for this. Will in particular, I don't think he's a sexual predator or a pedophile or poses any danger to anyone outside the situation. Mm -hmm. So while I think the scenario you're giving with ways of arranging and forcing this is a probability, I don't need that to be true to be okay with Will. And the reason I say particularly with Will is because he does sense the wrong there. Mm -hmm. You have to imagine, at least I do, that the UHC pushes this as part of their, you have to follow these rules to reach pure spirit, to save the world. I'm sure that their soul and damnation is probably in there too. So to still fight what you know is wrong, even though you believe those things, I think that speaks to his character and his goodness 
So I do think that Will is a good man. I don't think the moral culpability is on him in this particular situation. I agree with that. I, he was put in a really crappy situation where he really didn't have much of a choice. So I think that I feel more sympathy than anything for him. Yeah, I definitely agree with you that I don't think he's a predator or a pedophile. And I don't think there's any indication at all that he'd be a danger to women or girls in the future. I would tend to agree with you that there are definitely mitigating factors that shape my opinion of Will in Mm -hmm. this case, in this book. And I know that there will be people like we see with Dev in the future who disagree. Mm -hmm. And that's okay. I think that this is something that we're meant to think about in this book. She's done this before Mm -hmm. with these moral questions that maybe don't have one answer and just really make you think. And that might be the point of it. I totally agree. I spent all morning musing in my head about do sincerely held beliefs absolve you of doing wrong things when you sincerely believed that you were doing good for yourself and Jesus and whatever. Do you know what it reminds me of is in the Keep Sweet documentary, there was a man who, well, he's a man now. He was a teenager at the time and Warren Jeffs made him reach out to his girlfriend in the cult who had escaped and helped get her back. Yes. And it was so sad. God, that was heartbreaking. I I felt so much sadness for him as well, because he was told that if he did not do this, that his eternal soul would be cursed to damnation. And he believed that. And I think that I really understand people saying, okay, well, a lifetime compared to eternity is nothing. So I have to do what they're telling me, even if it's causing me suffering in this lifetime to not suffer eternally. And and I do think that if you believe that, yeah. it makes me understand. And I feel very sympathetic for the people like Will or like that man on that documentary who did these things that they regret, but because they believed they had no other choice. I really like hearing your perspective on that. And that's interesting to me because I have a hard time grasping that kind of belief. So like hearing your perspective on that is is really interesting to me. It makes me think, as does the rest of this book. But anyway, going back to this scene, I'm here reading this and it's clear that Will and Lynn care about each other. You know, Will is comforting her. He's clearly trying to do the right thing, but he's conflicted because of the situation they're in. And part of me is like, that's actually kind of sweet. Maybe these two could work it out somehow. But then my brain's like, she's 16 and incredibly vulnerable. And he's a 23-year-old man. And then I'm just sitting here chasing my own brain around in circles like a golden retriever chasing its tail. (laughs) That's what's happening in my brain. Well, most of the time, actually. I think that's an accurate image of what's going on up here. Yeah, the thought of shipping these two hadn't really occurred to me. Mm. So they have a seven-year age difference, which is not that much. But at 16, it is, if you know what I mean. Oh, yes. There is just so much life for Lynn to have now. I want her and Will to remain close and be great parents to Ching or Sally, but I don't really see them being together romantically or want that for them. Mm -hmm. The way I see it, and I know that this is just in my own head, but I think that if there are any feelings between them, Mm -hmm. and we don't actually know if Will's desire to comfort her comes from romantic feelings or just protection. We don't really know. But if there are, I would expect them to fade as they integrate themselves into the real world, Mm -hmm. meet people their own age and heal. But Mm -hmm. that's just Mm -hmm. how I see it. I'm pretty much here with you on this. I would really love for them to have a caring co-parenting friendship and partnership. And it's great that the book seems to end with that happening. And I so agree with your point about Lynn, especially needing to 
yeah. live and experience the world. Yeah. If in a decade or so, after both of them have had extensive therapy and, and Lynn has lived in the world and become confident and stable in herself, maybe I wouldn't object to the idea that they'd find their way up to each other. But I'm not shipping it. I just, <laughs> you know what? I think this is turning into a therapy edition because I think that where this is coming from is, is my own unresolved child of divorce trauma slash I watched Parent Trap too many times. <laughs> as a kid well let's get back to strikes note though because that's yes. really the part yes. that you're most excited that, for and that is a much more cheerful and less fraught subject okay so right away he's included the date in the letter like she asked it's thursday april 14th which just shows us that even in letter form strike is good at doing as he sold stop mm. it kens <laughs> you know what that does to me that's not fair you can't say stuff like that you know i gotta take the upsides in the cult stuff where i can i was immediately swooning with the first paragraph where he says that if dev doesn't see a note back by saturday they'd see her on sunday i just find this so sweet because the first thing he does is give her reassurance that they'll come for her yeah this is honestly one of my favorite things about strikes letters to robin while she's at chapman farm just the constant reassurance that the minute that she gives word they'll be there to get her and he doesn't let her down. He'll never let her down. Well, of course not. Rita Ora says so. But yeah, this is my favorite thing about this too. And what a contrast to, when are you coming home? I want to go on vacation. <laughs> me, 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 me. Love That's my Murphy voice. Ryan Murphy there. It's <laughs> a good Murphy voice. <laughs> so Strike starts off by giving her a brief summary of his meeting with Abigail. It made me smirk a little when Strike writes that Abigail isn't keen on testifying because, yeah, of course not. Right? Like, mm -hmm, I bet she isn't. Funny that. I can't imagine why she might be hesitant to get on the stand. I know. Can anyone say, you know, Fifth Amendment, zip it? I don't think I don't think they have that in the UK, but the equivalent of not having to incriminate oneself. Yes. Thank you. Another thing I really love about Strike's note is that he gives all the relevant case updates, like he's going to interview the Graves family, that he's trying to find Cherie, but he also mentions the stuff with Little John and what's going on with the Franks. Mm -hmm. I just think that this is important because he's not treating her as someone who's away and only needs to know the relevant bits in the case. She's still his partner. He's still running everything by her, wants to tell her these things. These updates also do a really great job of keeping part of Robin still anchored to the real world and reminding her that it exists outside of all the other apocalyptic crap that Jonathan Waits is talking about. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a good point. I don't think that we ever see his thought process when writing one of these letters, but I'm sure based on his thoughts during the rescue chapter that that is part of his reasoning too. He makes it very clear throughout this book that he knows exactly how to deal with the situation she's in to support her in the in the best way, in the way she needs to be supported. That is such you know? a good point. It's such a good point mm -hmm. when you compare, I mean, jokingly, I compared Strike's letters to Murphy's, mm -hmm. but no, what you're saying is exactly right. Mm -hmm. Strike knows the right thing to do. Yeah, Murphy kind of does the opposite. We can talk about that as we go on, but he does yeah. the opposite when it comes to his dealings with he Robin. Does. And I think Strike has the intellectual knowledge from his experience, but he also has mm -hmm. the intimate, personal Robin knowledge. knowledge of Robin, right? And yeah. he combines them to be her rock. It's also just funny the way he says, the Franks remain freaks and might be planning a kidnapping. <laughs> I love the way that that's phrased, coming through with the alliteration. Yeah. <laughs> I do wonder if he borrowed Barclay's phrasing here specifically to try and make her laugh, because I like to think that he did. He does like to make her laugh. She needs some the laughs. They are in short supply here, unless they're like forced in that creepy meditation, but you know. Ooh. Yeah. And he ends the letter with reassurance again, just as it started. Look after yourself. Anytime you want to come out, say the word. We'll batter down the door if necessary. S 
X. It's missing just one letter there. <laughs> <laughs> Is that how you say it? British listeners help me out. Do you say X or do you say kiss? I don't know. Yeah, what is it? I don't know. Can we talk about this? We know that for the most part, Strike never puts kisses on things. So I believe that this was completely intentional. I think he was probably trying to just give any kind of comfort that he can. Was the only other time that he did this for Robin on her birthday card at the end of Trouble Blood? That's definitely the only time I can remember. I did a search, but I couldn't find any other instances. Just Strike X in the card and SX twice in this book on on his notes to her. When she got the card in Troubled Blood, both the kiss and him calling himself Strike pleased her. Mm-hmm. So there's a precedent for a positive reaction to SX, you know? As an aside, I realize that a lot of people find this interesting, but we do not do this here in America. Mm-hmm. Is this a thing in Canada, Pulls? Yeah, signing off with the mm-hmm. kiss? No, right. definitely not for stuff like text. I'd probably add XOXO to the end of a card that I was writing to someone, but that's it. I think I add that to yeah. Christmas cards to family and stuff. I've seen XOXO on cards, mostly Valentine's Day stuff, that it comes yeah. already in the card. I would never write it myself. Oh my God. Does my family now think I'm weird for writing XOXO on Christmas <laughs> cards after I write Love From Us? Maybe. Am I a freak? Am I the weirdo in the family? Therapy edition. Oh my God. When you get cards, does anyone else put that? Is it just you? I don't know. I haven't been paying attention. I definitely do not do this. But I didn't see it as a romantic thing. I was like, hugs, no, no. No, no, it's not, it's not romantic. It's just emotions. Yeah, emotions are generally unpleasant. (laughs) Oh my God. I'm going to go have a crisis now. Okay. Therapy. It's funny because I think I posted a video about this, this woman that I follow on TikTok Mm. who is from Georgia, but lives in Yorkshire. And she Mm. didn't understand this at first either. And then overcompensated and was doing it to everyone. It was funny because the reactions that I got to expressing that we don't do this. Some people were like, what do you do? Do you just end the sentence as is? It's really funny to see the the cultural differences there. It's like, yes. Yeah. (laughs) Although I have noticed that I've developed a tendency to punctuate every sentence with LOL to show like a general state of friendliness at the end of the message. Like, I'm not mad at you. I'm not being aggressive at LOL. It's a very irritating habit. I'm trying to break myself of it. I just don't think about my text appearing friendly because I feel like, why does what you type say what your mood is? I mean, you listen to Gen Z using a period at the end of a sentence is a literal attack on them. So um, (laughs) I think what this means is that I'm officially old mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. not British. I would definitely agree with uh, uh, some of those statements. You know, you're only a few years younger than me. So yeah, I know. But I'm holding on to that as hard as I can, as tight as I can. You know. Kansas is over here like, I'm a youth and your periods at the end of sentences are an attack on me. Yeah, I've actually, I think, started sending texts with more periods at the end of it, being friends with you, Lindsay, and texting with you than I Mm. ever have before. I don't know. It's just like you're subtly influencing me whenever you're you're texting me. Because I put a period at the end of my sentences. This is insane. Making you more aggressive, Kens. She's like making you grumpier maybe or something. It's not a bad thing. Well, don't text any youths. I think I've told this story before, but I did not realize what the X meant until the book gave me context by saying that Strike <laughs> never put kisses. Remember, was that Career Reveal yeah, or something? Yeah, it was, it was Cuckoo's Calling. Oh, it was Cuckoo's Calling? Because she texted him RX. 
Okay. Like as a temp. Yeah. So even once I understood what they meant, I didn't understand why it was done or the culture around it. So mm-hmm. I even had a friend who was reading the books for the first time in, I think it was 2019. And she messaged me one day and said, why do they, why do they do this? And I explained, <laughs> well, they're kisses. Yeah, but why? I was like, I don't know. Anyway, let's get back to the note. It says, Robin wasn't sure why the note had made her cry, but a tear now dropped onto the paper. The connection with her outside life had affected her like medicine, fortifying her, and the offer to batter down the door and the single kiss beside Strike's initial felt like a hug. Oh my god. Okay, if Robin wants some insight into why this made her cry, I feel like I can offer some. Because you love him, dummy. And also because you need a good night's sleep. But mostly because you love him. It's not hard. No, it's not. Robin did not think enough about the fact that she's in love with him in this book. I need Mm -hmm. more. Agreed. Yes. Well, there's no way she's not going to think about it a lot in book eight. That's for (gasps) sure. don't jinx it. (laughs) She's totally gonna though. I can't wait. But, you know, in seriousness, I love the way that this foreshadows the eventual coping mechanism that she develops to resist the cult's indoctrination, which is strike. Both as a single point that serves to connect her with everything else in her life and just as himself, the man she loves, who is her anchor. I will never get over that one hexagram saying, what are you sure of in your heart or whatever? And then this <sighs> happens. Yeah. And you know, when it when it says that his note felt like medicine, you know, mm-hmm. I'm in favor of people taking their medicine. Unlike the cult. Strike is her medicine. Unlike the cult. Medicine, supplements. Yeah, maybe Strike can give Robin some vitamin D next time. <laughs> okay. You know what I mean? Oh my God. <laughs> I think we know oh, what you mean. I mean. That closet from the office. Uh, sorry, it's such a stupid joke. <laughs> so Robin writes him back with a brief overview of what's happened so far. Yeah, it's kind of a good thing she overheard that conversation between Will and Lynn because this is a good deal of information for their client. Mm -hmm. I say this as if it wasn't written that way, but still. (laughs) It is a very juicy and useful piece of info. I think if I were Strike, I'd be really worried about Robin's confirmation that there's sleep deprivation and underfeeding. Mm -hmm. Not that they already didn't know that, but just because it has to be hard to think of Robin in that situation. It's hard for me to read and she's fictional to me. She's not fictional to him. I think he definitely does notice that and worry about it. Because what does he start including with the notes right after this? That's right. Chocolate. And I find it very sweet that Robin has a heavy heart when she tears up Strike's notes. Because you know that she wants to keep it and put it away in her little drawer where she keeps her cork from the racetrack. And I bet she still has that donkey balloon in his birthday cards. Oh, she totally does. This whole bit is so sweet. But that just reminds me that next book, they need to have another outing that results in some sort of cute souvenir. Mm -hmm. You know what I want? And I don't know if this would ever happen, but I really like to imagine a scene where Strike sees the cork or anything else and is like Mm. what's this oh my god i would love that yes please it'd be very sweet eventually Mm. i imagine one day he'll know when they live together and she has her little box of Mm -hmm. treasured memories Mm -hmm. and he's like your treasured memories of me go back this far she's like of course they do dumbass exactly (laughs) i wonder if there's anything else that she's kept that we don't know about oh like a hotel key from oh uh, Barrow, Barrow yeah. Furnace. Yeah, the little information packet he printed for the surveillance course he gave her. Oh my gosh. So quirm. Okay. Yeah, there's that's a lot of emotions for me right now. Now I'm just thinking of the hand kiss again. Oh, classic. 
That just reminds me. I wish that there weren't so many coincidences in this book, these books, because I feel like you could really arrange a few things to mean anything that you want. But I was just thinking the other day about how you, we have kisses in books two, four, and six, and we're coming up on book eight. Even kisses. Or attempts at kisses. I mean, I'm just saying hand kiss in Silkworm. Accidental kiss. kiss. Outside in Lethal White. And then you have the, attempted kiss. Uh, almost kiss. Uh-huh. So I don't know. Kinds, you've connected the dots. I could be on to something. So we also have the cheek kiss in five, so maybe this doesn't fit. That's different. Cheek kisses could be platonic. These are pivotal. Pivotal, pivotal kisses. kisses. Special romantic kisses. An accidental kiss is not Well, but he fell <laughs> her lips. Romance. He went for it almost romance ken's i i like this theory i will do any amount of contortions to make it work yeah we're just going to conveniently ignore the bits of evidence that don't contribute to the theory as <laughs> is traditional robin gets a bit lost on her way back and of course what she stumbles across is going to be important mm -hmm. it says groping around she found the thing she tripped over it appeared to be a broken stump or post in the ground she stood up and as she did so she saw by the moonlight that there were several broken posts set in a rough circle they were definitely man-made and looked unnervingly ritualistic, set amid the surrounding wilderness. I don't think I guessed at this point that this was the scene of Dayu's murder, but I knew this couldn't be good. Definitely not good. The ritualistic bit had me very worried that there was going to be yeah. some kind of like human sacrifice out here or something. Everyone wearing cloaks and carrying lanterns and gathering at the turret. Or I thought that this was where they tied people up to punish them, as Robin thinks. But then mm -hmm. with the added worry that they turn out to be whipping posts, which was a very unpleasant thought. Yeah. But really what I was most worried about was Robin cutting her leg here. I very much did not want that to get infected or for her to get tetanus. Both would have been really bad news. And I did not want Zhao to get involved any more in her medical care than he already is. I don't even trust him to be able to handle like an infected cut. So mm -mm. I didn't even think about that. And I'm glad I <sighs> did it because I don't think I could have handled another thing to worry about. Yeah. It is kind of creepy that mm. Robin had been thinking about the spirit Dayu as mm. she enters the forest. And then she comes across this, which is far scarier than any illusions or stories that the UHC makes mm -hmm. up. Yeah. Joe is really good at making things extra creepy in ways that really stick with you. Yeah. Yeah. The, this part really stuck with me for a while mm. in the book. The chapter ends with Robin realizing that she hadn't written a note for Murphy. Oh, so sad. Oh. Mm. How awful. I know. Mm. My question robin mm -hmm. is why didn't he write a note for you right. why didn't your boyfriend of eight or nine months want to talk to you the first chance he had and ask if you're okay surely he knew what the plan was going to be and then she thinks that she has to apologize for forgetting not to judge but if i was murphy i'd have been in touch with strike at the earliest possibility i want to send my mess my girlfriend support love but i'm not him i guess i guess the other option is that he did write one and it was just so mm -hmm. unimportant that it wasn't mentioned Okay, somehow I like that option even better. That is somehow even more delightful to me. Okay. It just did not even register with Robin. <laughs> <laughs> Ouch, Murphy. It's rough, buddy. <laughs> that's pretty much the whole of this relationship. That's a rough yeah, for you, buddy. That's rough, buddy. All right, so we're at part three. Hey, new part. Do, 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 do. All right, only three more parts to the rescue. 
Yes. Okay, so the epigraph for part three. Obstruction means difficulty. The danger is ahead. To see the danger and to know how to stand still, that is wisdom. And that's from hexagram 39, obstruction. Mm. So I definitely remember my feelings when I read this epigraph for part three because it made me very nervous for Robin. But I love what this epigraph is saying about standing still being wisdom because in regards to Robin... It's growth from the last book, in my opinion. Robin is very careful with how she goes about this, so much so that she realizes at some point that she's going to have to cause more problems, ruffle more feathers if she wants to get the goods. But Mm -hmm. yeah, danger is coming. It feels very ominous. Yes, you are very right. It is incredibly ominous. I mean, in this part, so we're getting into the meat of the investigation now, right? Robin is fully immersed in the farm. Strike is on his own outside, facing difficulty after difficulty in all areas. Obstructions to progress. This is where they're cropping up and the danger. But we know that our favorite detectives will be able to overcome them eventually. Isn't this also where the Bijou thing starts coming back? I feel like the Bijou and the little John things start like heating up in this this part. Yeah. Yeah. Like in a handful of chapters, that's whenever his affair with Bijou starts to make the news. Yeah. Danger is coming. Yeah. (laughs) All right. Chapter 37. Strike starts to notice something off about little John and Pat and then drives to Norfolk. The epigraph reads, Through resoluteness, one is certain to encounter something. Hence, there follows the hexagram of coming to meet. That's hexagram 44, coming to meet. So for some reason, the something being a line of its own here really tickles me. I don't know why. It just makes me laugh. I'm like, something. It's isolated. It's on its own. Yeah, it's it's important. It's something. something. It really reminds me of my analysis for stuff where I'm like, well, we don't know what it means, but it's something. Something. (laughs) (laughs) But I I think that this hexagram might refer to the Pat and Lil John situation because coming to meet is the hexagram about darkness unexpectedly obtruding from within and below, which to me definitely hints at Lil John being a saboteur and strikes resoluteness and noticing and questioning everything of everyone one about his behavior is it fits he knows that something is there and he's gonna keep poking at it till he figures it out i mean maybe that is it the something is written that way because it's still unknown and it could be anything and he's just exactly not sure what it is he knows it's something it's something it's something (laughs) (laughs) so this chapter starts out with solid gold for me Mm -hmm. it says if the receipt of robin's letter from chapman farm didn't have quite the same effect on strike as his had on her the absence of a note for Ryan Murphy cheered him enormously, a fact he concealed from Dev Shaw when the latter confirmed that there'd been only one letter inside the plastic rock when he checked before dawn. Look, I'm cheered about this too. <laughs> Very cheered. Yeah. I know that it says it didn't have quite the same effect, her letter, but to me... That implies that it has nearly the same effect. It's the same effect in quality of emotion, just not in degree of emotion, because he's not starving and isolated in a cult, so it, it hits him less, but he still really misses her. Yeah, I love that you pointed this out, because my first response when I read this is, what do you mean it didn't have the same effect? But yes, of yeah, course, it's because point. he's not in the same situation. It's mm-hmm. not that he doesn't miss her. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of funny because Robin is in denial about how this relationship with Murphy is just okay. But Strike, in his jealousy, is actually picking up on this important point. Murphy did not cross her mind when she was writing her letters. Letter. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, he's barely even an afterthought. We know who's taking priority in her mind. Quite. And it's not Murphy. <laughs> 
Let's talk about this exchange between Dev and Strike, because this mm -hmm. is very interesting. They're talking about the information that Robin found that Will likely fathered a child with an underage girl. And Dev has a really strong, angry reaction to it. Why do you think Dev reacted this way? You know, that's a really great question. And it makes me wonder if maybe there's some backstory there that we'll find out about later that Ooh, will connect to this in some way. That's an interesting idea. I bet you're right. And how funny that in our last recording, we were talking about how we don't really know him that well and want to learn more. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. His reaction was fascinating to me because while we've definitely seen him as a very principled character in the past, and he's never been afraid to speak up about something he's worried about, you know, or that he finds wrong the instant anger the uncompromising position and especially the charge silence after the interaction with strike all of these definitely suggest to me that it is personal in some way to him yeah. like you said ken's and i'd bet cash money that we'll find out and why in a future book because i feel like this isn't here for nothing yeah i wonder what this is about i'm mm -hmm. thinking either a family member who didn't get justice Mm -hmm. Or maybe he had a case in the past that he wasn't able to get prosecuted or something. And it's the case that still haunts him. Ooh, I was thinking family member as well. I didn't even think of a case from the past. I would love mm. to see that. That would be very cool. It love be, that yeah. for Dev. I mean, it sucks <laughs> for Dev. Love it for us. Interesting story. It's yeah. some juicy backstory. I love it. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So we get some Pat next, which is always amazing. Always. Pat asks why Dev is upset. And it says, Sex with underage girls, said Strike. Not Dev, he added. Well, I knew that, said Pat. How Pat could know that, Strike didn't ask. Dev was easily the most handsome subcontractor employed by the agency, and Strike knew from experience that their office manager's sympathies were most readily engaged by good-looking men. I feel like this was a little harsh on Strike's <laughs> part, because I think I'd say the same thing as Pat, assuming that if Dev was sleeping with underage girls, he wouldn't be talking to Strike about it in the office. And therefore, <laughs> it's easy to assume that they're not talking about Dev. I uh, I read this as Strike thinking much more broadly as in like, how could she know that Dev doesn't have sex with underage girls rather than how could she know that we weren't talking about Dev? And on that general point, the sort of broad, I, I tend to agree with Strike because how can we know that the handsome and nice seeming colleague isn't secretly a predator? Hmm? So you don't trust Dev now? I don't trust anyone. No, I think you're right about what he's saying. I just mm. mean that it's an understandable thing to say mm -hmm. to me, given that she overheard this tense moment. Mm -hmm. I get the argument, but it is a bit strange to me to have this thought about someone you've been working with for so long and who just got so angry about yeah, it. Yeah, that makes sense. Maybe Strike's just being contrarian, <laughs> mm. <laughs> just to be a shit. I don't want to agree <laughs> to that because I don't like it. <laughs> He's definitely not wrong about Pat liking handsome men, though. She, We know she has a little bit of a weakness. Yeah, it's probably just a yeah. way to transition into the next bits where mm -hmm. he thinks about Pat being sympathetic to handsome men and that reminded him of Murphy. <laughs> yes, you're 100% right that this is just an easy way to get into this transition, which makes me laugh so much. An association of ideas. Just such a great phrase that we know means strike is so Jealous of Murphy in a stupid, handsome face. Stupid, You know what? It Murphy. is pretty stupid. It is a pretty stupid face, mm -hmm. I imagine. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I'm just stupid, kidding. I'm just Murphy. kidding. Don't come for me. <laughs> anyway, this is this whole bit is exciting for me because mm -hmm. I've talked about that sharp look that Pat gives Strike at the end when he says, we'll see. But she also gives him one here when he says, incidentally, if Ryan Murphy calls, tell him there's no note for him from Robin this week. Something mm -hmm. in Pat's sharp glance made Strike say, there wasn't one in the rock. 
All right, I'm not accusing you of burning it, snapped Pat, turning back to her typing. What are those looks for? What does it mean? I think that Pat has picked up on Strike's jealousy, even if it's just a little bit. I think she's a tiny bit suspicious of his feelings towards Robin. Maybe there's something in the way he said, by the way, no note from Ryan <laughs> that tipped her off. Like he was trying too hard to hide how cheerful that fact made him. Maybe Strike is as bad at hiding when he's happy as he is at hiding when he's unhappy. Even if she wasn't suspicious before, I feel like Strike immediately getting defensive about it would have clued her in a little bit because he does get quite defensive. He does get quite defensive, mm-hmm. yeah. And her line, I'm not accusing you of burning it, made me laugh. Because, I mean, yeah, he probably wouldn't actually burn it if there had been a note. But I feel like he might think about burning it in his little secret jealous heart, little pleasant daydream to pass the time. It is a pleasant daydream. Yeah. Can I just say, though, I love that Strike stops to ask Pat if she's all right. He's taking care of that touchy-feely stuff with the employees now. He genuinely cares about Pat. He notices that she's off and he asks her like, you okay? I'm afraid this idea that Pat is on to strike is going to be one of those theories that ends up being too good to be true and way off. Kind of like the Curry Nights were before we got Troubled Blood. But I don't know. She gives him a lot of looks. She does. I feel like these looks are happening a little too often to just be coincidental. Yeah. Now, to be fair about the whole Curry Night thing from Lethal White, (laughs) we took one instance of Strike and Robin and having curry with Nick and Ilsa yeah. and just went hog wild with it. <laughs> but this is like a handful of times all in one book. I think she might be catching mm-hmm. on. Yeah, that does make me feel a little better. It's a great point. I'm glad yeah. we started the podcast after the whole curry night fiasco. Yeah, so there's no there's no recorded evidence. Thank God. Of us thinking about curry <laughs> nights. Yeah. No, I agree, Kens. I feel like this is definitely actual foreshadowing, not just romantic wishful thinking. Romantic wishful thinking doesn't sound like this at all. I've never rom- romantically no. wishfully thought anything in my life no no that's not me (laughs) i'm grounded in reality i was immediately suspicious about pat and little john not that i thought pat was doing something shady but i knew something had to be going on because when has pat turned down an opportunity to speak her mind about someone yeah exactly just like it says pat is not typically one to pull punches so to see her so reserved is an immediate red flag that something's up. I was wondering if Little John was an ex-lover of Pat's or something. <laughs> I don't know, like her estranged <laughs> son. Um, Not for any real reason, other than that's where my brain went. An ex-lover would have been very funny. Oh my God, it would have been hilarious. <laughs> How much growth have we seen between Pat and Strike since Troubled Blood though? Like here he's actively yeah. seeking her opinion and her judgment on something. He respects her. He wants to know what he thinks and what she's observed because he trusts that she has has good eyes in her head and a good brain in her skull, you know? Good reflexes when package bombs arrive. Just maybe not with handsome men. Handsome men, yeah. Everyone has At a least kryptonite. he knows. At least he knows that's, yeah, that's yeah. your kryptonite. Everyone has an Achilles heel, okay? Mm-hmm. You just gotta work around it. Okay, so Strike leaves just as Murphy calls, and I gotta say, I wish he had stayed because I wanted to hear Murphy's reaction to not having a letter. <laughs> Do you think that he didn't want Pat to see him being curious or listening for his reaction? I think he probably is already like, yeah, she already seems a little suspicious i need to get out of here but yeah i would be very surprised if we don't start getting some more comments or at least more meaningful looks from pat in the future 
There's a paragraph here that talks about the lack of progress Strike is making with the UHC case because he hasn't been able to find witnesses. I suppose we can mark this down as a troubled blood parallel because, as we've said before, both of these cases are cold cases. So Strike is running into the same problems he had back when they were investigating Margot's disappearance with witnesses being hard to find or dead. And also, Cherie changed her name just like Gloria did. So same kind of things. Strike toying with the idea of maybe driving on to Cromer after his interview with the Graves. Is it just wishful thinking on my part to hope that a small part of him wants to be near Robin? Even if it's only briefly, like he just wants to start driving by and be close. Of course not. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's that's logical. That's just basically fact. So next, Strike is driving up to interview the Graves family and he gets a call from Midge. And, you know, since we talked about Midge and all of that stuff the last time, trying to look at her a little more objectively. I don't think that's why I don't find her annoying in this particular bit. I think this was just a good phone call. It was. I like that she gets straight down to business. To defeat the Huns. Exactly. Not to reopen this old chestnut, but... Mm, But you're gonna. I really do think that she and Strike Buttheads, because they're similar in some ways. And I guess I just really identify with her inability to follow orders just because they're coming from her boss. Because I, too, would absolutely question or push back against any order I didn't agree with, because... It has to make sense for me to be able to do it. Otherwise, I'm not going to do it. And now I've had the sudden thought that I bet Midge had a hard time following orders when she was in the police force. (laughs) Because I'm pretty sure that they're they're big on like the chain of command and doing what you're told just because your superior told you to do it. That is very understandable to me. Mm -hmm. Because you're going, you have so many people like that. You're going to have bad calls, bad takes. Mm -hmm. People Mm -hmm. saying you have to do things just because... Carvers. Yes, exactly. That's very understandable to me. It's less understandable for me with Stripe. Yeah, it does make sense that she wouldn't have been happy there and that she'd want to work somewhere she could be a bit more independent. Maybe where she could respect her boss, I guess. Right. I think this is where I know that I'm different from Midge, though, because I don't have the inability to follow orders from a boss who I respect and has proven Mm. to be someone to do the right thing. I Mm. guess when I've struggled with that, it's because they've proven their untrustworthy yeah okay that makes sense i guess if this is happening with strike then yes that's what bothers me about her that it's making the team dynamics harder than it needs to be but i don't think that's what's happening here yeah i appreciate the way midge acknowledges that catching this new cheating spouse case so early means that the agency won't make much money from it we're not going to make much out of this when she says she sees herself as part of the team the agency is a it's a we not a you and i work for you you know it kind of reminds me a bit of robin's i thought having offered the client coffee we ought to provide it being a gentle pat to strikes morale and cuckoo's calling We know he he, he liked that little plural pronoun. Yeah. Although that was her first day, so it was a little bit oh, more yeah. meaningful. That was, yeah. Also, was I don't cute. think that Strike and Midge are going to fall in love. Probably oh, not. No, definitely not. Seems unlikely. It seems unlikely. It's yeah. the penis is yeah, not working out for her. it's more like the it's the familial comfort and moral support right it's like like a family of colleagues like she's the occasionally difficult younger sister anyway and then strike asks midge if she knows about anything weird between pat and little john and midge just comes right out and says that none of them like him i love her directness here you know everybody's all on the same page as far as little John yeah. goes. Yeah. So like, what point is there in hiding it when everybody hates this guy once yeah. gone? Yeah, like, of course. Yeah. So the chapter ends with Strike continuing to drive up to the interview and we see his mood lower as he gets closer to Norfolk and it says, mm-hmm. 
Shortly thereafter, he was driving through the open gates towards what had once been home to the stolen prophet. I wonder if Strike is now prejudiced against all super flat landscapes or if it's just the specific Norfolk flatness. I'm trying to think if there are certain things that I just don't like because I don't like them like this because of past things uh, associated with Star Wars. Star Star Wars. Wars. I was about to say Star Wars. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Sorry, Star Wars fans. It's not my fault. Okay, um, what are we doing on our next episode, Ken's? All right, in our next episode, we're going to be doing chapters 38 through 40. And in this episode, we're going to see Strike interviewing Alexander Graves' parents, get an update on Ted's health, and then Robin has to write a letter to Rowena's sister, Teresa, declaring her UHC membership. I'm really excited to do the Graves interview because there's a lot of good things in there. That'll do it for this episode. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoy what you've heard, don't forget to follow us on social media. We're on Twitter, Instagram, and Tumblr at the SE Files Pod. You can also contact us on our website at thesefilespod.com or email us directly at sefilespodcast at gmail.com. Thank you so much again for listening, and we hope to catch you next time for another episode of The Strike and Ellicott Files.